everyone, and welcome to the Just Cincinnati podcast, a podcast where each episode we strive to highlight local injustices, amplify the voices of those working for justice, and provide practical ways our listeners can join the work to bring about a more just Cincinnati. I'm Just Kyle Vath. And I'm Just Stephen Byers. Today we have the honor of speaking with the Reverend Olivia Hamilton, who serves as the curate at Calvary Episcopal Church in the Clifton neighborhood of Cincinnati, and until very recently served as a full-time chaplain at Cincinnati's Children's Hospital in the Psychiatry Department. She feels deeply called to working with children with mental illness and their families. Olivia received her Master of Divinity from Harvard Divinity School in 2015. For two years after that, she served as an assistant chaplain to college students through the Episcopal Chaplaincy at Harvard. Olivia's family includes her wife Molly, who is a nurse practitioner in the Children's Hospital Trans Clinic, their adopted daughter and foster son, as well as their rescue dog. Both Olivia and Molly are Cincinnati natives who enjoy cooking, spending time in the woods, and hanging out with their big extended family. As you'll see during our time together, Olivia discusses some important points about how we can bring about a more just Cincinnati in relation to the LGBTQ community and our communities of faith. So let's jump right in. Olivia, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for thinking of uh, me and for being willing to have this conversation. Oh, absolutely. It's uh I, I, I think you bring a great voice to this conversation and, and I'm excited to see where it goes. So, um, you know, this month obviously is Pride Month and uh, LGBTQ issues are uh, front of our minds and uh, very important to talk about. And uh, one thing that I think is very important to talk about in this area is how LGBTQ communities interact with the church and specifically Christianity. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know what you would say about this, but I, I think from my perspective um, that the church and maybe even more broadly religion in general is some of the last holdout uh, for acceptance of LGBTQ um, communities. And I think that's something we should talk about. There's lots of reasons for that. There's lots of um uh, very justifiable discussions that we need to have about that uh, for people who are serious about faith, serious about religion. I think it's important to talk about, um, but I, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that um, some, at least some of the discrimination, uh, if not most of the discrimination against uh, communities who identify as LGBTQ, um, it, it's driven by or at least attached to the church or religion. So I'm, I'm curious um, what you would say to that. And, and um, maybe in that same vein, um, tell us a little bit about your faith upbringing, you know, it, it, what that looks like and um, maybe what brought you to the point that you are today. Yeah. So um, in terms of, so I'll start answering the end of your question and then maybe like work my way back. Um, in terms of my own faith upbringing, um, I was raised in a, in a very secular household. Um, my, uh, my mom is, uh, grew up Catholic, but that, that wasn't really an important part of her identity. 
Uh, my dad actually grew up in the Episcopal church, but did not retain that identity as he got older. So in my family growing up, um, we didn't go to church. Um, religion was just something that, you know, was, was not high on the priority list. Um, but for me personally, I had always had, I guess just, um, a dr- I was always drawn to and interested in spirituality and how people make meaning of their circumstances, um, the, the stories that people live by, uh, what gives people hope, how people um, deal with struggles in life and how the ult- this, their sense of ultimate meaning kind of um, evolves as, as their life kind of unfolds. And um, for me, starting around middle school, I had become very interested in religion and uh, it was kind of, I was like an anomaly in my family because that wasn't something that was, you know, talked about or very important to us. Um, but I started going to churches on my own um, around middle school and uh, always, um, you know, felt supported by, even though it wasn't very important to my parents, I always felt really supported and kind of exploring this aspect of my uh, identity and what was important to me. And um, to make, I guess, a long story short, um, when I was uh, a young adult, I was uh, studying comparative religion in college. And I had never really, um, though I had gone to different churches, I had never really committed to Christianity necessarily. I kind of dabbled in Buddhism. I had good friends um, and still have very close friends that are Jewish and felt really compelled by that faith. Um, But it wasn't until I was like in my early twenties that I really kind of had this, uh, it wasn't a moment in time. It was more of a process where I just thought, you know, I'm studying religion. This is really important to me. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I, you know, I I'm drawn to spirituality and I need to kind of invest in my own spiritual life instead of having it be this thing that's sort of removed that I'm like looking at from a distance. Um, and that's when I started taking my own faith very seriously. And, um, even though there are, you know, as, as I think you and I both know, and probably a lot of people listening to this will know there are a lot of reasons why Christianity is problematic. Um, my essentially I just felt um or I guess what I'm saying is there are a lot of there are a lot of valid reasons why why someone might steer clear of Christianity and for me I just find the person of Jesus and the story um of his life and death and resurrection so compelling um so gripping so transformative that uh, I kind of, as in my early twenties, just decided this is this is a story that I want to base my life around. This story has so much power for me personally that I think I can I think I can commit to this and um, keep saying yes at you know at every intersection where there might be a reason to say no because the church has you know harmed people or because of colonialism or all this all these really important. Um, all these really important struggles and problems, I just kept coming back to the, 
the witness of Jesus and the person of Jesus and how the person of Jesus has transformed my heart and my life. Um, so that's essentially um, how I came to Christianity, even though I had a more secular upbringing, I sort of, um, I sort of said to myself, well, you know, if ever, because I didn't have a lot of, I, well, I really no family pressure and no like community or cultural pressure to, to fit into sort of any box in terms of religion or spirituality, I kind of got to carve my own path. And for me, the path of Christianity and the way of Jesus, um, just made, made a lot of sense. And it's one of those things where I kind of committed to it and continued to say yes. And at every point where I said, yes, I just found my life became better and richer, um, for having said yes. So with all that being said, I didn't, um, I grew up in a very progressive family. My coming out when I was 18 was not, it was like a non-issue. Like I always joke with people because when I came out to my parents, I was maybe like 17 and I was like, mom, dad, like, just want to let you know, like, I'm, I'm, I think I'm gay. I'm dating a girl. And they were like, okay, like you really need to clean your room. Like, and you know, like it was just sort of like a little blip um, on the radar, not, uh, not anything that, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm very blessed and fortunate that I have a supportive family. Um, and that my community growing up when I was a teenager and into my young adulthood, the community that surrounded me really, um, you know, I wasn't getting a lot of messaging about uh, harmful messaging from either religious community or family community about my, my gayness being a problem or my queerness being a problem, which isn't to say that I haven't encountered issues with that, but it is to say I've been very fortunate that um, compared to a lot of other people, I haven't had to, I haven't had a lot of the deep, painful experiences of exclusion and marginalization and discrimination within my sort of intimate family or community. Um, so that's a little bit of background about me. Um, so you, you, you know, faith was a big part of your life growing up and, you know, me knowing you Personally, I, I know that it even it, it took a part of your profession and your uh, vocation, um, and and you you dove in headfirst. So tell tell us a little bit about um, that piece, and you know how you find yourself, what role you find yourself in today, and and what part of your life that is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when when I I went to uh, I was studying comparative religion. In college and I had a great professor who I was kind of uncertain about what I wanted to do after graduating college and with this comparative religion degree and she said you know have you ever thought about doing an MDiv and I, I didn't know what that was um, and she essentially said doing an MDiv is you know it's a master's that allows you to continue to learn more about faith and religion and how people use their faith and spirituality and in practical real life ways, but it also um, prepares you to do sort of ministry, um, whether that's chaplaincy or an ordained vocation. Um, and I, the idea of chaplaincy had always, uh, once I kind of learned what a chaplain was when I was, uh, my, my grandmother was um, 
was uh, dying. And this was in Newport, Kentucky, back about like 10 years ago when I was a young adult. And that was my first experience of really feeling um, I, I spent a lot of time with my grandma at the end of her life. And I just felt really drawn to those spaces, those like thin places in life and death where you can um, be privileged to accompany someone in, in their transition point. Um, and someone was like, have you, I think it was that prof uh, professor that I was mentioning said like, have you ever thought about chaplaincy? Like, does, and I was like, oh, that sort of combines both my deep love, fascination and curiosity about faith and spirituality with my, um, with my deep love of storytelling and my desire to like accompany people in, you know, in those, what we call like liminal spaces in life. Um, so, so I did my MDiv and um, had intended. And for those folks who are non-seminary, what's an MDiv? An MDiv is a master of divinity, um, which is typically a three-year master's program um, that trains, that trains someone for uh, a vocation in ministry um, and has historically been a pretty uh, Christian enterprise, but that's, that's, you know, um, being transformed. So I went to divinity school at Harvard and I studied alongside Muslims and humanists and atheists. And so there's a lot of, at least in the spaces that I inhabited, there was a lot of, um, diversity and how people were living into like the study of, of religion and the MDiv program. Um, but at, thank you. Thank you for letting me interrupt you. Yeah, there. no, that's just fine. want to make sure everybody's on the same page. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I set out to be a chaplain. That's what I, that's why I did the MDiv. And as I was, as I was doing that, I did an internship at a lovely Episcopal church um, in Watertown, Massachusetts and sort of uh I had been going to an Episcopal church for a while, but it was that year of internship that really made me fall in love with the tradition and discern a call to ordain ministry. So I, I was ordained as an Episcopal priest, which was a long but beautiful process um, that culminated in my ordination uh, last year. And I've been working as a chaplain at Children's Hospital for the past four years, but I'm transitioning roles now to work full time. Um, for the church. So I'll be the curate at Calvary Episcopal Church uh, here in Clifton um, starting this July. But at any rate, um, yes, I don't know if I answered your question, but, but um, my, my spiritual life uh, has always been important to me and has certainly manifested itself in my sense of calling to how I serve the world and how I kind of find my place within the family of humanity. Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you know, you said you had a, a very supportive family, you still have a very supportive family. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, in that time when you started working towards a, a, a career in, in uh, faith related um, endeavors, did you ever have any conflict with that, uh, any discrimination, any, um, any, any trouble in that, that route based on, you know, from when you came out at 17 for, did you ever have any struggles with that from the religious community? Yeah. You know, I was, um, discerning, uh, around which communities I would let myself kind of, uh, be 
held by and be a part of um, because I was just acutely aware of some of the damaging like rhetoric in the church, not only rhetoric, but actions and how that rhetoric and action can like really harm people. Um, So my wife and my then girlfriend, now wife, Molly and I had been um, going to a Methodist church for a few years in New York city. Um, She was raised Methodist and we went to this lovely church that was um, just a great place. And it was very, uh, it was part of, I forget what it's called in the Methodist church, but the kind of like reconciling or open and affirming um, end of, of the spectrum. Um, However, with the knowledge that at some point I may want to be ordained. Like, I think I had that even like early on this idea that that might be a possibility. Um, I just felt like there wasn't a strong future for me in the Methodist church because of their, um, the really divisive politics in the Methodist church and in their polity around ordination of LGBTQ folks. Um, And then, so, so that was kind of like, it wasn't necessarily like a a really personal stinging experience of discrimination, but it was an experience where I could have continued to like attend this, this church that we really loved. Um, However, like I felt like there was a stumbling block there or a a roadblock, a closed door where um, that kind of, uh, made that discernment pretty clear for me that if this isn't a community where I could see myself having a a future, then, then like, I'm not going to invest a lot of my time and, um, spiritual resources in this place where, you know, it didn't really feel like because I wasn't raised Methodist and didn't have a lot of, um, skin in the game and that denomination per se, it didn't really feel like that was my battle to fight. Like I, I, and I, so I talked to a good friend of mine who was actually a rabbi um, and sort of said like, you know, I love this church that we're going to, but the Methodist church more broadly, like, you know, I just don't, don't think that that's a a good fit for me as a queer person. And she said, um, she essentially asked, what do you like about the Methodist church? And I said, you know, I really like that we take communion once a month. That's my favorite Sunday. I really like uh, the the sort of ritual, the ritual aspect of it. Um, But it's just a shame that, that the Methodist church um, is still really hung up on the ordination of queer people. And that's when she said, um, have you ever thought about an Episcopal church? And I'm not saying this to like plug the Episcopal church necessarily. I'm just telling this as part of my, my story is that, you know, my friend said they, you know, they do communion every week. They are, it's a very sacramental tradition and, you know, not, not that the Episcopal church doesn't have its own hiccups and problems, but gay ordination is not, is, likely not going to be a stumbling block that you would face. Um, So there's, there's that. And then also like, so, you know, I present in the world as a pretty masculine presenting um, woman and, you know, short hair and, and I wear men's clothing and all that for those, because you can't 
because you can't see me, um, I'll tell you what I look like. Uh, and that has certainly, um, that has certainly been an issue for me, uh, in various religious spaces, um, or context. So I had even in very progressive or liberal Boston, where I did my MDiv and where I lived for five years, I had, um, I was doing a chaplaincy internship at a nursing home and, uh, really loved working with that population. Um, and my supervisor pulled me aside, um, one day and said, you know, I just really think that your appearance is going to be alienating from like, you're going to, um, experience a lot of alienation from our residents because, they're of a different generation and they're, they're going to be confused or um, I don't remember exactly what word she used, but basically said like, they're going to be off put by your appearance. Um, what she didn't know was that one of the residents, an older fellow um, who I visited on a weekly basis as part of this internship provided spiritual care to him had this wall of, photos in his nursing home room and to everyone else he would say this is me and my brother so-and-so and to me he said everybody thinks this is my brother but really that was my partner like he died five years ago um wow so you know here was this total juxtaposition of being told on the one hand by this person who was in authority because she was my supervisor that my appearance as like a visibly queer person was going to be a problem for me in ministry. And then having this simultaneous experience that my appearance as a queer person opened this door for connection with someone who had this deep, um, deeply held secret and shame around his identity that he rarely shared um, that at, you know, I felt incredibly humbled and blessed that my being who I am could be seen as an open door for someone else, like, and especially an elder in the community. Um, and I just had other experiences where I think that's probably the most um, poignant one but in general, I've, I've in lots of different contexts, um, I have had experiences of being either doubted or pigeonholed or stereotyped or, um, you know, people kind of, I, I had one uh, supervisor for a summer program who said something like, I want you to, it was a hospital rotation for chaplaincy. And she said, um, you know, I went to the interview wearing my, what I consider like my kind of interview attire, which for me was like a bow tie and a, and a collared shirt and nice slacks. And um, she said, I want you to experiment with like, presenting a little more feminine because as for similar reasons, like, like that she thought my appearance would be, um, 
like almost like she thought it was attention seeking versus just the natural expression of like who God made me to be and how I want to live in the world. Um, so, so there are those experiences that still have some sting to them that like when I was working as a hospital chaplain for the past n- number of years, I would still sometimes have these, these old voices and doubts creep in about like, will my sexuality, will my gender expression, um, my identity be a barrier between me and this person who I'm trying to connect with and trying to accompany or will it be a connection point? And I can honestly say, Kyle, that in the four years that I that I worked um, as a hospital chaplain, um, overwhelmingly, I believe, and the data that I have collected supports the idea that um, people, especially teenagers and youth um, who I worked with predominantly in the last few years, um, find my, how do I say this? Uh, my presentation as a visibly queer person who is representing spirituality and religion, they find that to be an open door rather than, um, a disconnection point. I've had so many, um, teenagers especially, but also youth just say things like, you know, tell me their, about their wounds from the church. Tell me about their experiences of going to churches and being, um, it can be as, as in your face as kind of like you're, you're queer or you're bisexual or, or you're trans. Like we don't, you know, you're not welcome here. It can be that explicit or it can be really, uh, or, or for instance, in very gendered religions where a child will be told, uh, a trans child will be told, no, you need to, you need to be with the boys, even though that child identifies as a girl or whatever. So it can be very explicit or it can be very um, subtle and manipulative in very sort of subtle ways um, where some churches uh, can project or portray an image of being radically hospitable or radically welcoming. Um, and then as, as the children I work with have gone through any number of different, um, uh, I don't know, as they journey deeper into that community, they find that it is not the theology does not match the um, what is presented on the outside. And I think that can almost be more painful than if they were just flat out rejected from, from the gate. Like I had another experience that I had that I hadn't thought about until just the second was um, I had uh interviewed for a job with a pastor who was um, more, I guess, theologically conservative around LGBTQ issues. And I said to him, um, 
and this was not in the church. This was for a hospital chaplaincy job. He was a supervisor. And I said, you know, this is what you see is what you get. Like I, you know, I, um, I'm queer. I'm married to a woman. This is how I dress. Like, cause I, I had so many bad experiences that I just wanted to be really upfront with people that like, like I, I'm not going to change to, to like do this internship. This is just me. Um, and what he said was, uh, he said, you know, I personally believe that homosexuality is a sin. And with that being said, um, I think that we could learn a lot from each other. I think we could work together. Um, I think that, I forget exactly how he said it, but he, he basically said, I, you know, I'm committed to striving to like create a workplace that is inclusive, but I, but this is my theological belief. And I didn't take that job, but it was so helpful to me that he was honest and clear. Like, even though it was like, oh, that, you know, that kind of sucks that that's your position, but it really helped me in my discernment around whether that was going to be a good fit for me and help me to discern, you know, that it wouldn't. Um, and I was, you know, I was grateful. Honestly, I was grateful for his honesty. And instead of some other experiences I've had where there's this sort of veneer of inclusion and acceptance. Um, but then when the rubber meets the road, there are some misgivings that haven't really been fully dealt with. Yeah. And and let's talk about that a little bit, because I think as someone, uh, as a white male cisgendered Christian, um, who was raised in a very conservative environment uh, and in a non-affirming environment, I, I I would say that I would probably not be classified as affirming until probably uh, just a few years ago, probably when I met you. Uh, and for for the listeners, we met at at, at an Episcopal church uh, when we started going there. And um, so right before that, I, I would say I was not affirming. So this is pretty recent stuff for me too. Um, and I was steeped in, uh, you know, uh, Christian education uh, at a at Christian college, um, Bible knowledge, all of those things. Um, but I think as time went on, I slowly think, you know, start questioning things you know, this doesn't fit. How does, how does, you know, loving God, loving our neighbor fit with having to deny someone's dignity, uh, internal, the, the, um, internal, uh, divine nature of God and, and having the, um, having God, the image of God within each of us. How does, how does that all fit? So I, I have a bit of grace and mercy for others who are struggling through those and trying to make all those pieces fit. Um, and I think there are a lot of churches, maybe a majority of the churches in the greater Cincinnati area who would say, we love God. We love people. All are welcome. I looked at a website uh, right before we talked uh, of a major church here in the area, and it said, whatever your thoughts on church or your beliefs about God, you're welcome here. We love everyone. Yet we know that they would probably not classify themselves as affirming. So I, I wonder what you would say to churches like that and maybe talk a little bit about what affirming means to you. Yeah, um, such a good 
question. I think, um, gosh, I have a lot of thoughts uh, swirling through my head. I'll try to make some sense of them. Um, I have a lot of, um, you know, I think about my own, and this might be kind of a, a leap that we don't want to make, but I think about my own journey as a white person, um, trying to reconcile my internalized, uh, or not internalized, but my, um, the racism that is inherent within me and how um, I'm by no means, by no means whatsoever, a perfect ally, nor will I ever be to people of color. And yet through God's grace, I believe I have come to be, um, I have been, my eyes have been opened or I have been um, kind of my soul has awakened to the real um, realities of the histories of and present realities of racism in our country and in our world. The reason I bring this up is to say um, there are so many experiences in my life where I have said or done something completely. Um, I've been a knucklehead, you know, about issues of race. I have, um, I have been part, obviously as a, as a white middle-class person, I have been, I've, I've, reaped the benefits of a system that is, you know, completely unjust and has been for generations. Um, and with that being said, I feel like, like I stated a, a moment ago that it's by grace, only by grace that I have come to at least have some inkling that another world is possible and that I can participate in that world by um, really doing some hard internal work in, in myself and in community with other people, which for me is spiritual community because you need, this is spiritual work. Um, and that has been such a blessing in my life. So I, I just make that parallel to say that I am sure that there are many people and perhaps people who are listening to this podcast right now who have some beliefs or ideas that they have inherited um, culturally, religiously around LGBTQ issues, um, but that by grace have maybe these tiny little glimpses of possibility or these, these tiny little openings where they see perhaps something different is possible. You know, maybe it's like a relationship that they have with, you know, maybe a child that has come out or a, a friend who's gay or an issue, you know, around trans inclusion that has just, maybe there's just those little tiny pockets of possibility. And that for me is grace. And, and it's like, you know, 
there before the grace of God go I. Like I am, I am, this is the LGBTQ issue is obviously one that I'm, uh, that I'm woke about, but I, given my, my location within that, but, but with that being said, I have a lot of compassion and, um, want to be, uh, the same hospitality that I hope others show to queer people. I want to show that hospitality to people who are like, maybe like in a different place on their journey towards acceptance and inclusion and affirmation. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. And I can't speak for all members of the queer community because I think for some in the queer community, it's like the damage has been so deep and so real and so painful that that idea of like reconciliation or having like, like an embrace of people who have been harmed, been harmful in the past might just like not be on the table because of the traumatic nature of their, you know, history with the church. But for me, um, I really want to draw people into that sense of possibility and that sense of, um, you know, there's a line that I really like, which is, wherever you draw a line in the sand, Jesus is always on the other side of that line. And for me, that speaks to, um, to all of us, whether, you know, whether you're in the LGBTQ community or whether you're someone who's kind of struggling with ideas around inclusion, acceptance, affirmation, which I think those are really different things. Like including someone is sort of like the bare minimum and like affirming and really celebrating is like, what we're striving for, right? Um, but all of that to say, uh, right, when you draw a line in the sand, Jesus is on the other side, that like, for me to draw a line in the sand is say like those oppressive people over there, like that is like diminishing the humanity and the possibility of reconciliation that I think exists. So I don't know where I'm going. I kind of lost the question, but what do you think? No, it's it's good. I, I, maybe you could touch on what it means to be a, an affirming church. What right. are you looking for? Uh, you know, is it a church that says we love everyone, all are welcome, we're loving God, we're loving neighbor, or is it is it more? Yeah, I think it's. Um, yeah, thanks for bringing me, really me back in. I was I was off on a little ride there. Um, I think <clears throat> to be an affirming church. Um, I'm essentially skeptical of any tagline in any church that says like, uh, all are welcome or, you know, this is a a place for everyone when I do not see that that church is actually doing the work of like what it means to be welcoming. And again, I'll go back to, cause this is like my main frame of reference. You know, I think we have a problem I'll say in the Episcopal church of wanting to be a more racially diverse, like seeing the value of diversity, wanting to be a more racially diverse um, church and have more racially diverse worshiping communities. We're a very white denomination. Um, and yet, we're not always ready or willing to do the hard work, um, the hard soul work 
of confronting and interrogating our own racism to make it such that people of color would feel like this is a place that they want to be or a community that they feel they can be a part of. And I think the same is true for LGBTQ issues that, you know, a lot of churches might kind of, and I say this sort of flippantly, but like slap a rainbow on their website and think like, ta-da, like we did the thing, we are now, you know, open and affirming and yet um, haven't thought about issues such as what if a trans woman wants to go on the women's retreat or what if, uh, you know, any of the myriad issues that come up that need to be prayed about and, and done so in a really thoughtful way if a church is truly to be radically welcoming and hospitable um, to LGBT people. So I think affirming can often, for a church to say they're affirming can often be a performative gesture, which is to say it's something that is done to kind of paint that community in a certain, in a certain light, um, but rarely does the, not rarely, I don't know, not, um, it's not always the case that folks put their, you know, walk the walk that they're talking or put, put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Um, so I think affirming not only means things like being mindful of what gender language you use for God. Um, being affirming also means like in my experience that not all gay people have the same ideas about how they want to worship and what's important to them. Gay people are as divert, you know, there are as many types of gay Christians as there are gay Christians because, you know, for some, they might like, for me, I really like a more, um, I say traditional liturgy. I find the, uh, a traditional liturgy, very beautiful, very comforting. And that might be very different for another gay person. So it's kind of like, um, think just being mindful of, you know, like language that we use for God, for example. Um, whereas for me, like, I'm okay with using he for God, but I would also want to, um, I would want to tease that out with the people that I'm worshiping with. Or, um, for example, um, thinking about an affirming church would not just mean what is it like for someone to come and sit in our pews on a Sunday morning, but also how is that person, that LGBTQ person, um, able to be enfolded into the life of this parish or this church um, all the other days of the week? Um, are, are queer people in positions of leadership in this place? Are queer people uh, being, being invited and asked to be on vestries or governing boards of churches? Um, are queer families highlighted and celebrated in the same way that straight families are? Like in my church, it was very um, meaningful for me and my wife that are, you know, we're foster parents and adoptive parents. And that's part of our queer identity is like that we 
we make family in this, what I consider queer way. And that was really celebrated by our church community. There was like a blessing for our adoption. Um, our foster care journey has been very, uh, very um, folks have been praying about, about it and for it and celebrating our unique family. And that's been really important to me. Um, and so it's like the rites of passage and the rituals have been expansive enough to include my queer family. Um, and then also I think like literally when I said a minute ago, putting your money where your mouth is, I think literally like what kind of, because we know churches, especially wealthier churches can be bastions of power and privilege within our communities. Um, how are you, how are you using your endowment to better the lives of queer people? Like, how are you, um, you know, co collaborating with, um, facilitating relationships with, empowering um, queer communities through your outreach and through your vision and through your mission, whether it's whether it's supporting the work of an organization like Caracol um, that does a historically queer um, outreach to queer people living with HIV and AIDS, um, or you know our church where I serve currently that that opens our doors pre-COVID to um, support groups for transgender youth, like um, connecting with and forming meaningful relationships with queer people and organizations in the community is one way that a church can be affirming that I think looks different than just putting a rainbow sticker on your website. And um, especially, again, looking at the intersections of things like, for me, it's really important that a church would be mindful of the intersection of like race and sexuality, you know, all of those things that, that all of those systems that are interwoven um, to say, you know, we can, we can have relationships with, um, healthy relationships with not like charitable giving. I'm talking about like relationship, um, with people who are queer. What would you say to a person, you know, I think you're, you're, uh, you've talked a lot about, what a, a person can do to who's kind of already there, they're wanting to at least be performative in uh, supporting the LGBTQ community. What would you say to the person who maybe is a leader of a church who is, is not affirming, but they have that little spark you were talking about of, of a little door opening that they want to, they want to bring together their love for the Bible, their love for God and their love for, community members who are not like them or maybe live life a little bit differently or, or have different views on things, or, um, you know, they want to be loving to their LGBTQ neighbor. What would you say to that someone who has maybe just a little spark in them of how they can use that power in their church community to make a difference in, in the life of, of someone else? Yeah, that's such a good question. The quote that comes to mind immediately is from James Baldwin. And he says, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but he says something to the effect of if your view of God makes the world seem smaller then like, 
that's not a God to believe in. If your view of God makes the world seem larger, then like, yes, go for it. So my like encouragement or my words of advice that I would give is uh, queer people are amazing. We love hard. We fight hard for what's sacred to us, what's important to us. We are by nature expansive people who don't who don't necessarily see things as they are, but see things as they could be and live into that. Um, queer people, because we don't necessarily see things in a binary way, we just have like, I just will say, like, I think queer people are like, especially gifted to do God's work of disrupting this or that or either or thinking and living into like the middle space the middle space of possibility, um, the middle space of, you know, like I was saying, you can, you can be kind of of one community or have a certain belief, but still see that possibility and, and that things might change. And that might be a, to me, like a Holy spirit thing or a grace thing. So I just think your life will be, I mean, it sounds uh, yeah, I don't know how this sounds, but I just think your life would be better if you have queer people in it. Um, we, you know, we don't, we don't bite. Um, we have, we have uh, very real, very valid, uh, many of us experiences of being hurt. And we want you to listen to that before filling the airspace with your own either performing inclusion or all of the, oh, what about this biblical, you know, all of that, just like, just like live into that sacred practice of listening where for a time you can put your agenda in the parking lot and just like truly be able to I mean, be, be like Jesus to just like sit and listen. Or I think of the story of Mary and Martha where it was like what the moment called for was just to be present, like just to be present to the person in front of you. And I think you will find that that goes a long way in relationship. And it also goes that practice that that sacred practice of listening and being present is where God's at, frankly. What I'm hearing you say throughout all of this, and please correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm putting words in your mouth, but what I'm hearing from your example of the, the, the chaplain who said, hey, I'm not there, but I, I will, I'm committed to learning to these last examples. I'm hearing just be transparent and clear with where you are. Um, it, if you're not there yet, if you're not affirming, then just be clear about that before people invest time and effort and energy, but also pair that with listening and, you know, frankly, shutting up, <laughs> quitting with a jargon, quitting with the preaching and listen, get to know people and see where that leads. But be transparent with where you are with things and acknowledge that, hey, I'm not there, but I'm committed to trying to figure this out and 
in my experience, I, I have seen that when someone is genuinely, genuinely searching and genuinely wanting to have relationships with people and truly live out, as we say, the gospel, when we are trying to live out the gospel, it naturally results in better relationships and a better theology, a better piecing together of all the different pieces. Would you say that's true or what would you push back on or what would you correct? No, I think you're spot on. I think that was like an eloquent um, encapsulation of, of kind of what I've been maybe stumbling through, but um, I, I cannot obviously speak for all queer people and say like, this is what you need to do, or this is what is enough, but I can speak for myself and for myself, I can say exactly kind of what you just said, Kyle, which is that we are imperfect people, all of us. And I know that acutely within, you know, myself, which is, I'm not saying I'm beating myself up about how imperfect I am, but it's more to say the work of reconciliation is, is hard and we're not going to get it right on the first try. This is not a space where perfectionism should be the goal. This is a space, I think, where vulnerability and honesty and authenticity should be the goal. And to the extent that we can have honest conversations across the difference in our lives, I think we will be a better church. I'm not speaking about the Episcopal church. I'm speaking about the, the global church, you know, the, the, the body of Christ. I think it applies to many situations, but I think there is certainly, you know, I, I feel really compelled when I see churches that are really doing like some forgiveness work around, around harm that they've caused um, to LGBTQ people where there's like that authenticity and that vulnerability. I'm just a sucker for that to, to really feel like when, as you said, when folks come to the table, just fully um, not embracing, I don't know what the right word is, but fully owning their own kind of where they're at on their journey, not seeking to be ahead of themselves, not getting stuck in, you know, where they were five or 10 years ago, but really like pushing on that edge of possibility. I just think it's a beautiful thing. And I think about somebody, I'm not going to say who it is because I want to respect this person's relate, you know, the confidentiality of this relationship. But I said, um, I was having a conversation with someone a while back and this person comes from a very theologically conservative family. Um, and it's, this person is straight, but, but being gay would have been like a big no, no in this person's family of origin. And I was talking to him about his family and the struggles that he has of wanting to um, open their minds or open their hearts to be more loving and accepting of queer people. And he said, I just feel like there would have to be some kind of miracle for my family to ever change. Like that's how deeply entrenched their 
their beliefs are, they, it would literally take a miracle. And I kind of reframed that and said to him, like, what if you are the miracle? What if the fact that you grew up in this, with this kind of um, viewpoint, you know, inherited viewpoint, but you have been able to have this change of change of heart, like that in and of itself feels miraculous to me. And I just, what I said to him was like, I don't want you to discount the fact that like you are living, like you're, you are a testament from the way I see it, God's just like ridiculous ability to soften things that were once hard or to shoot forth new life in places that were once, you know, where there, where there wasn't life. So I guess um, instead of looking at it as, gosh, it would have to take a miracle for this to happen. It's like, or, or it would have to take a miracle for this church or this person or this, you know, family to change their perspective. It's more like, look for the places that, like I said earlier, those pockets of possibility, those sparks, and just like breathe life into those, those small spaces and moments and places. Um, And I think you were saying at the beginning, probably before we started recording about your your uh, vision for this podcast and about what are some practical or, you know, ways that people can feel empowered to be change agents in their own space and time. And I think that's part of it for me is like the work of relationship and the work of, of hearts changing is not often like big and flashy and glamorous. It's like, relationships that you build day in and day out and inroads that you make day in and day out that um, sometimes are messy and sometimes are slower than you would like. Um, And yet I certainly believe that God is working through the slow and messy work that we're all doing. Referring to someone as they want to be referred, whether it's a trans kid or a kid in your congregation who is like questioning their sexuality um, or their gender identity. This is one of those places where I I was, I don't know. I feel like conflicted about how to talk about this because I was kind of saying earlier, like it's slow and it's messy and that is, um, that is okay. And there's beauty in that. And I think that queer lives are also like on the line. So there is also an urgency in some ways to the work that we have to do. So it's a both and, which is part of our Episcopal lineage is that we can live into that both and instead of that either or. So I think it's both that that the work of relationships is slow, it takes time, it's messy, and there are very practical, um, very concrete ways that you can support someone, um, even if you're not fully there yet. Reading a book that helps you to kind of suss out some of the 
the issues or listening to the voices of trans, gender nonconforming, LGBTQ um, youth who have so much to teach us. Um, really doing, doing what is in your power to affirm literally the, the worthiness of the lives of our, of our young people, even if you're still sorting out your theology. I think that's what I want to say. That is my kind of takeaway is both honor the slow, messy work of reconciliation and do what you can in whatever way you can to let LGBTQ people know that their life has value and that you want them to be alive and you want them to be in your community and in your world um, and that you're willing to go to hard places within yourself to make that happen. That's beautiful. And thank you. I think that's probably a good note to close on. We've spent a lot of time. We went way over time. Thank you for the the generosity of your time, uh, for sharing your heart, for sharing your vulnerabilities. Um, it's a pleasure to, to know you as a friend. And uh, you were one of the first people I met when I came to the Episcopal church and um, you and Molly are incredible inspirations to me as a fellow parent. You all are amazing parents. I, I wish everyone listening to this uh, would get to see you all parent uh, because it's, it's, uh, it's quite inspirational. Thank you so much for your time, Olivia. Oh, thanks, Kyle. It's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, I just, uh, it's the Mutual Admiration Society because um, Molly and I, like, though our time at the cathedral we were kind of like uh you know we drifted drifted in and then drifted out um that was some of the most formative time for me like in my ministry and in community and getting again to see that that spark of possibility of what christian community can really look like and you and your family um were paramount to that constellation and uh it's just um really cool to me that you are pursuing this uh, pathway through this podcast and I would say to you what I said to the person I was telling the story about a minute ago which is just um, your kind of spiritual journey and your your journey of your life towards being more affirming of queer people is really beautiful and I honor it and I, I'm willing to bet, though I can't speak for you, but I'm willing to bet there have been painful places in that for you. But I thank you for doing that work and for creating the space to amplify the issues in, in our community. So thank you, Kyle. Thank you so much. enjoyed our podcast today we'd so very much appreciate you subscribing reviewing and sharing our podcast this will help more people find us and join the movement and if you're able to support this podcast and the work we do please head on over to our patreon page at patreon.com slash just cincinnati we're grateful for your support in amplifying the voices of those bringing about a more just cincinnati
Our theme music for Just Cincinnati was generously provided by the internationally renowned but locally based singer and songwriter Kim Taylor. More of her intimate and folksy music can be found on her website at kim-taylor.net or wherever quality music is streamed. <laughs>